Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. It has been really fun walking this parish path with you guys um, over the last couple of weeks. Um, but this morning, I'm reminded of a line from The Hobbit, which I feel like I have to share because Father Jordan isn't here. So how are you going to get your Tolkien reference if, if I don't give you one? Which is that adventures are not all pony rides in May sunshine. We've been on an adventure together. We've been walking through the garden of, of God's delight in the sunrise of creation, and it's been beautiful and wonderful. And this morning now, our path takes us somewhere where I am terrified and dreading to go. We are going straight into the, the, the epicenter of the emotional, the relational, and the moral crack-up that's at the beginning of human history, right after the beginning of, of human history. When I was a kid, I didn't like to think about the fall because I was confused by it and because it seemed like this distant fairy tale, just really strange and severe, like, you know, Rapunzel's mother getting punished for um, and having her child taken away for eating some salad greens. I was like, seems very harsh, very severe, very remote. But now, as an adult, I don't like to think about the fall, not because I feel like it's distant or strange or severe or like a fairy tale, but always that it feels close at hand to me. It feels really familiar. And it feels so familiar that sometimes it can even feel kind of boring. Like I don't want to think about it because I'm like, oh, that again. But every time I wake up in the middle of the night and I feel the dark and I feel guilt within my own soul and I know that I should pray, but what I do instead is I just roll over and I pull the covers over my head and I pretend like it didn't happen. Or every time I feel with a twinge of guilt, um, some stupid thing that I said or some way that I was cruel to another person and I feel that flush of embarrassment and regret. All of those feelings that I don't want to feel, so I just sort of like bury them and pretend like they're not happening. Each of these moments, and I'm sure you can think of some of your own, is a long, leggy crack that splinters out from the fall. It's a reminder that though we long to be at peace with God, and with other people, our relationships are often plagued by an overwhelming reality of shame. Father Canlis, the writer of Backyard Pilgrim, he points out that our first reaction to these feelings of, of guilt is very similar to the sensation that came to our, our primeval mother and father, to Adam and Eve. The impulse when we feel shame is to cover ourselves, to cover ourselves up. And so many different kinds of relationships were fractured in the fall. Sometimes it's talked about as like this fourfold fracturing, okay? The fracturing between the relationship between God and man, the fracturing of the relationship between Adam and Eve, so human relationships, the relationship between man and creation, and the relationship between man and himself. So there's lots of different fracturings of relationships that we can talk about, but this morning, for whatever reason, <laughs> I feel compelled to talk about the one that hurts me the most on a daily basis, which is the shame that I feel in relationship with other people, daily in relationship with other people. So we're going to look at that kind of shame as we look at Adam and Eve, and we're going to start out by talking about 
why they started out unashamed, what that condition was like, how they fell into shame and what that looked like, and then how Jesus deals with our shame and others. And friends, I'm like, I'm trembling up here. I am afraid to go here. So let's just go together. We're going to be in Genesis, um, the end of Genesis 2 and 3, and we're just going to, we're going to work through it. We're going to be together as we work through it. Okay, so Genesis 2 at the end. Thank you, John, for reading that for us beautifully. Okay, first, let's talk about Adam and Eve and their original glory, naked and unashamed. There's at least two reasons why their nakedness before each other was not a cause of shame to them. And I think that those two reasons have to do both with their sense of identity and their sense of intimacy with one another. In our, our reading this morning, it, there, was, um, there was a poem. Did any of you recognize the poem in there? It's the third of the poems in, um, in Genesis, and it's Adam's. And it is a love poem. It's a love poem. Um, it's like a lovesick teenager. Adam's like this lovesick teenager who doesn't know what to do with his feelings for Eve, so he just bursts out into poetry. Um, it's a lot better than the poems that I wrote when I was in high school. I don't want those published. This very famous poem, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What this expresses, what Adam is expressing, is that the love of human beings is good when it is best. It is good in the same way that everything else in creation is good. And what I mean by that is that it's patterned in the same way that God has been creating all of these good things. God started off in creation by dividing substances. So he takes one thing, he divides it into two things, and then he brings those things back together. It's the creation of pairs. So he separated the light from the darkness to create the fullness of the spectrum. He divided heaven from earth and water from land to make the totality of the spatial universe. He separated the sun from the moon and he created time. And so now what he's done is he's divided this single entity, this single human being, Adam. He's separated his side. He's brought forth the peace that will make humankind full. That's Eve. I like the ESV translation of that old-timey phrase, help me. Did you guys hear the phrase help me growing up? I don't love it, but I really like ESV translates help me into a partner corresponding to Adam, corresponding. In the Hebrew, there's actually kind of like a spatial component to this phrase, corresponding. It means in the opposite place of and facing. The sense that we get here is that Adam and Eve are facing opposites who can look fully into each other's faces, who can meet each other in the eye. So when Adam looks at Eve, he sees her, but he also sees himself, and he sees what it's like to be fully human. He knows partly who he is because he knows her. And I think that that's what's at the heart of all great relationships when we experience them, right? We, we know others deeply, and then we know ourselves because we know them. God rightly and fully is acknowledged and expressed. The Imago Dei is rightly and fully expressed when we come together, a human diversity um, in unity, a human diversity in unity. And this was obvious to Adam and Eve, not to put too fine a point on it, because they could see 
their differences. They could see their differences from each other. Um, and they saw those differences as cause for rejoicing, that they were made for each other, and that they, they depend upon one another. That's an expression of God's ordered design for their mutual flourishing. Okay, that the human work that they share, tilling the garden, enjoying each other, um, and again, not to, not to put too fine point on it, but being fruitful and multiplying, that that work is done with bodies that have no shame is an important mark of the goodness, the original goodness of human nature. The theologian Graham Goldsworthy points out that unlike God, who creates without a body, human beings procreate with bodies. It's a different kind of creation. And as Father Jordan said last week, we are created in the image of God, and our being is derivative of his. It's contingent upon him. We're not self-defining. That's what it means to be human. We're created beings that now create, and our, our generative parts, our reproductive parts, those are lasting marks that we were created. They're lasting marks of our creation. Remember, um, Father Jordan said this last week as well, that, that sexual difference was deeply embedded in the image of God, male and female, he created them. And so another thing that the nakedness signifies is that Adam and Eve are in fact not God. But not being God isn't a source of shame to them. It's right, it's beautiful. So what happens then when the snake comes along and he tells Eve this, this awful thing? He begins to sow a seed of suspicion in her heart that perhaps God has been hiding the truth from her. And that, in fact, what God had called very good was actually not so great after all. Not that great. Not enough. Because why would you continue to be an ignorant human when you can be wise like God is and know everything that he knows? Perhaps you could even become like him in other ways, eternal, all-powerful, you know, as I was thinking about this passage this week, something stood out to me that I had never caught on to before, which is that maybe when Eve was giving the fruit to her husband, she wasn't like trying to poison him with this like poison apple that she had just eaten. But no, when she was sharing it, maybe she was trying to be his helper. She's trying to help him. She truly believed that there was something greater that they could become. And this, this snake guide had come along, had, had, um, had fathered her and told her this truth. And now she was trying to share that truth with her husband. And I wonder if that interpretive framework can give us some way of understanding the intensity of the shame that they both feel when they eat. Because I think the shame is of multiple kinds not just one kind of shame, it's a compound shame. Um, and I'm going to talk about two of those kinds right now. The first kind of shame, I almost feel silly even explaining it, because it's something that we all experience deeply and without words. It's, it's shame as the dictionary defines it, right? In acute embarrassment at having done wrong. This is the shame that instantaneously and subconsciously just recoils from other people into this protective self-hiding. It's, it's shame that is afraid of vulnerability because 
as human, our, uh, human beings, our, our naked bodies are vulnerable to all kinds of things now, violence, disease, decay, um, we're vulnerable to each other and we can hurt one another. And we recognize that other people can hurt us and also that we can hurt them. There's this whole other category of conduct that Adam and Eve didn't know before, that beings can lie, that harm can be done to and by them. The irony in that is that, um, in a way, the snake's lies kind of become true. Adam and Eve do now know good and bad. And they know bad because they've done it. They know it from the inside. And what this causes is an overwhelming need to hide. And, and I, I know, I know how this feels. Don't you? I mean, sometimes it's instantaneous. Like sometimes I wander into some unknown territory of evil and then I'm like, look, I don't want to tell anybody about that. I need to hide that from other people. Sometimes it's kind of like a little bit on a, a, a time release, <laughs> you know? Um, and this is something that we don't talk about enough as Christians, which is that the reason why we, we, why we sin is because, like, sin feels great. Sin can feel really good. You know what feels amazing? Is when you get so angry at your children and then you just let yourself yell at them. It feels great. <laughs> right? Okay. Y'all are laughing uncomfortably as if this isn't you. I know it's you too, okay? Uh, it feels great to be able to lie so you can cover your tracks so that people won't be able to, to hunt you down. People watch porn. People drink too much because it makes them feel better in the short run. But always, always, always shame catches up to us. Because we know that when we sin, something is just really wrong. And the guilt is a sign that something is wrong. And I would be remiss to point out, sometimes we can feel guilt and shame not just because of things that we've done, but because of things that have been done to us. Um, this is especially true if you've been abused in any way. Sometimes the shame gets attached to you. And so it gets confusing. What is mine? What belongs to you? There's plenty of shame to go around. But this is the first kind of shame, right? This instinctual hiding because of wrong that's been done. We're out of joint with our nature. But I think there is a second shame that's more complicated and confusing. And I've, I've often asked myself, I've like racked my brain for why it was their like private parts that Adam and Eve wanted to cover up. Like of all the things, why that? And um, I think, at least for Eve, this is probably true for Adam, but I see myself in Eve, and so I'm just going to go that way, that her nakedness was shameful to her because it was a visible reminder that she was created and that she had failed to become more. She hadn't become a creator. You know, in the Old Testament, the word shame is kind of funny. It's a bit different from the way that we think about it. Um, you know, we've been thinking about shame as like embarrassment, right? But there's a prominent sense that's expressed in this, especially in the Psalms, a lot, which is that shame is when everything you hoped for comes to nothing. We might use English phrases like, uh, or words like confounded or defeated. The psalmist is always asking God to protect him from enemies who will put him to shame. And what he means by that is people who want to destroy his life 
or his reputation or topple his work or reduce just everything to ashes. And I think this kind of shame is really operative between Adam and Eve in this moment after they've eaten. This feeling of um, this crushing consciousness of failure, of loss and destruction. And I also think kind of a sneaky sense of dissatisfaction. Because here are two things that are simultaneously true. Adam and Eve feel ashamed because they believed a lie, because they got duped. But the nature of the lie is such that Adam and Eve feel shame because they continue to believe it. They didn't just taste the fruit, okay? They didn't just like lick it, they like ate it. It became a part of them. The lie is more operative. And here is what the lie is. You should be more than human. You should be more than what you are. You should be more than the way God made you. So this spectral hope that they had had of being godlike had just gone up in smoke. And the snake had awoken in them a dissatisfaction for what they had been before. Their shared work, the tending of the garden, the making of children, the enjoying of each other, all of that had been confounded, had been put to shame, as the psalmist would say. Um, Father Canlis um, in Backyard Pilgrim, he suggests that what happened here, that what we describe as the fall, that I've been describing as a fall, is really more like children getting lost. Lost in the woods, they've lost God, and they've lost each other. And I would suggest that they've lost something really fundamental, which is their fundamental orientation, a love of being human. Our getting lost means that something purely evil, sinfulness, got mixed up together with something good, being human. So sin is like that. It's like a, t it's like a tumor. You know, it innervates, it wraps itself around good and healthy tissue. So our vulnerability, our dependence, our contingency, our limitedness, these are all marks of being human when being human was only good. And contemplating all of this feels so confusing and so painful and so disorienting because our shame is muddled up. My shame is muddled up. I feel it because of sins done by me and to me, but also because of my original innocence, my need to be fathered, my need to be guided, my need to be protected and told what to do and shown the way, my need for other people. It's all wrapped up together. And so I'm tempted not just to hide my sin, which is evil, but also my weakness and my dependence, which were wholesome expressions of, of my human nature. Now remember, Adam didn't know himself until he knew Eve. And God created Eve because it wasn't good for Adam to work alone. And so one of the ways that uh, that Satan's lie continues to confound us, continues to put us to shame, is because he speaks condemnation not just over our badness, but also over our goodness. And it's, that goodness is just hard to recognize because it's twisted up with evil, and that is what it means for our nature to be fallen. This is the complicated nature of our fallen nature. Not that every part of us is completely depraved, in every single way, but that the fallenness 
is pervasive, that it touches even our tenderest parts with shame. And we know what we long for, right? We, we know we don't want to be ashamed anymore. We want to stop hiding. We want to be known. We like want to look in each other's faces. So we want, and we even know how to do that. The way to do that, which is confession. James 5.16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And yet, guys, I don't know what you feel when you hear that, but what I feel is that my heart sinks. Because if I bring all my shame about what I have done and what has been done to me, if I bring that with all of my insecurity and my longing, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of how I will be met. I'm afraid that God and other people will abandon me, that they'll be as disgusted with me as I am with myself. And so what I need, I think what we all need, is reassurance that the purpose of us coming forward is not just to expose us or to reveal us, to strip us down further. No, but truly, we are to come forward to be healed, to be forgiven, and to be covered up again. Covered up again. Our desire to be covered is something that God accommodates in his mercy. And this all, this, this conviction requires a deep, really just like a gut-level conviction about the work of Christ, doesn't it? Because Christ took away all of our shame at once. Not just our shame of being sinful, but also our shame of being human. Our shame of being human. So friends, I just, I'm going to get into exhorting mode here. Okay? I'm going to exhort you with the rest of my time, with all of the energy I have, just to look to Jesus. Because in him we find a savior who saved us not just from sin, but from, from being human. He redeemed us not just from sin, but he redeemed and lifted up our human nature. Lifted up that human nature. When he stood up from death, we rose up on his shoulders. Our nature rose up. In the incarnation, the uncreated son took fully into his divine person our human nature. Okay, it's a lot of theology talk. I'm going to repeat that again. Listen very closely. In the incarnation, the uncreated son, Jesus, took fully into his divine person our human nature. He wasn't just a human person. He took on human nature itself, all of us. He knew what it was like to have need, to be dependent. Look, he was dependent on his mother's milk and on his friend's companionship and on his father's plan. He was human in a way that we couldn't be. He didn't see uh, being obedient to God's will as some kind of onerous task or some kind of extra. No, he saw it rather as the glory of being human, to be dependent and obedient. He's the glory of being human. He had a body that was like ours, that was vulnerable. Friends, not, not just vulnerable, killable. He had a killable body. How can we stop marveling at this miracle of his humility, that he took on the shame, not just being limited and contingent, but the deeper and pure shame of our sinfulness? 
He took it all on fully, every part of it. This is what Gregory of Nazianzus spoke about in that famous phrase when he said that all of our human nature was taken into our divine brother, son of God, for anything which the son has not assumed that is not taken up, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. If only half Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes may be saved half also. But if all of his nature fell, his whole nature, that's what I've been talking about, the whole nature, not just the frailty and dependence, but also the sin nature. If his whole nature fell, it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten and so saved as a whole. And so, friends, I'm going to ask you to do something scary, to come out of hiding, to confess both your sin and your fear of rejection, both your guilt and your frailty. But it's not that scary because you don't have to come forth just to be stripped naked and humiliated. For Christ has already allowed himself to be stripped for you. And you do not need to fear being alone and outcast that your father will turn his face away from you. For Jesus has already stood in your place and borne all of that. We think of atonement as like this stripping away of sin, of this uh, of being forgiven as being having the stri sin stripped away from us. And that's true. It does mean that. But to atone also and originally meant to be covered. To be covered by the blood of an innocent lamb. And so if the thought of remaining bare before God and before other people is too much, and I can understand why it would feel that way, can you remember that God stands ready to rush toward you and to hide you? To hide you just as he rushed to cover Adam and Eve with the animal skins, as he hid Noah in the ark to save him from his wrath, as he covered Moses with his hand when he hid him in the cleft of the rock. Will you now allow yourself to be covered like the prodigal son with his father's robe? Remember, friends, you can be hidden now, not with a flimsy fig leaf, it's just itchy, can't really hide you, okay? Or with a fur coat or with a flinty rock. Let, us, let this give us courage to confess that we can face each other now, face to face, without any condemnation, looking each other in the eye, more innocent even than Adam and Eve, because we are hidden with Christ. And we're clothed by his righteousness. And as a practical note, if you're thinking, wow, I would really love to confess, but I don't have anybody to confess to, or I'm not ready to confess to anybody yet. I would love to hear your confession. I know Father Jordan would love to hear it, Deacon Cindy. Just, it's going to be okay. There is no really being known without the truth. And so come forward, and we would love to clothe you with the righteousness of Christ.
Father in heaven, I thank you for being gracious, being sweet to us, knowing our frailty, loving us in our frailty. Would you move now in any hearts that want to be unburdened, that want to come out of hiding? Would you let them know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.